Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, once again, if you weren't around when I first I said it the first time. Um, we've been doing a series on prayer. We call it Teach Us to Pray. And we're taking seven of Paul's prayers in the Bible, and we're trying to learn how to pray better from doing it. Let me say that um, it's, it's nice to be back in the pulpit. Um, I was thinking about uh, Dami and uh, Emmanuel's preaching. As time was going on, you know, the first time they preached, you thought, ah, the boys are good. By the second time, I started noticing that there were amen shouts going all over here and there. And I thought, man, I may be out of a job. So it was important for me to take the last sermon. And they will not preach again until next year. <laughs> Late next year, in fact. Someone was saying that Emmanuel, Femi has slain his thousands and Emmanuel has slain his ten thousands. I said, ah, the kingdom is going away from us. All right, anyway. But we are trying to pray and we want to pray better. You see, the the purpose of this series really has been, as I said before, to inspire us to pray more frequently and to pray better. You see, if you have effort without direction, it's motion without any advance. If you keep going around in circles, you will be moving, but you will not be advancing anywhere. If you pray very, very much frequently, it's an important thing, but you have no direction in terms of how to pray, then you're praying amiss. At the same time, if you understand all the teachings about prayer and you don't pray at all, then you really are like a fool. Have you ever said something like this, for instance, um, maybe when you pray, do you ever pray like this? Maybe somebody is not well, our sister is not well, and you say, all right, they call Sister Kwelum to come and pray, and she prays, and then eventually says something like, Lord, we say that it is well with our sister, to which we then say, all right. Or have you said to someone, Someone comes to meet you, like I was at the airport one day, and uh, that, in fact, we're, it was Damian and I, we're, right? We're going somewhere, and the, the customs officers called us and now said, what do you do? And they said, I said, well, you know, you know, they were trying to get some stuff. Immigration officers were trying to get some things. I said, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. Ah, you're a pastor? <laughs> no, please, come around this side. And then we started to pray. I think there were two or three people. By the time I opened my eyes, there were like six or seven people. And when they want you to pray, they want you probably to say something like this you shall be fruitful and abound. To which you then say, Amen. All right. Or if you are in the car, as we are most times in Lagos, and we are driving, and then some guy is really in your front. He's in your front. He's moving this way. He's not moving. So you are honing. You are honing. It's so slow. He then, as you are trying to turn somewhere, he then turns there, and then you want to turn to the left again to avoid him. He then turns there again, and then he says something like this, thunder fire you. To which we then say, no, you don't, don't. Don't say that. If you ever uttered any of these kinds of words, you are doing a lot of things. What you are not doing is praying. Now, the reason I say you are not praying is the very first one that I mentioned is a declaration. The second one is a blessing. The third one is a curse. Now, the heart of prayer, Christian prayer, is a personal relationship. That is a bond among persons. Persons being involved here, 
the persons being involved here are the Christian God and his people. Again, it's a personal relationship. And so if it's a personal relationship, they speak to one another. In Christianity, when God speaks to us, we call it revelation. When we speak back to him, we call it prayer. But when you speak to the air, you are not speaking with a person. It's not prayer. When you make a declaration, what you are doing is making a declaration. You're not praying. When you are blessing, what you are doing is blessing or cursing. In fact, blessing and curses are basically almost in the middle of a declaration and prayer. You know, something. Because the declaration is speaking to the air. Uh, prayer, you are speaking to God. Blessing and cursing, you are speaking to people. But it's not quite a, a relationship in the relationship of prayer. Now, this is very, very important as a foundation for any other thing that we've said before or that we're going to say today. In Eastern religions, who do not believe in a personal God, they believe that everything is God and God is everything. So God is, you, you are a God, God is in you. Eastern religions don't believe in the concept of prayer, Buddhism and Hinduism. They don't believe in praying, they believe in meditating. Because to pray would be that you are speaking to a God, but if I am God and Jumaka is God and everybody is God, I just need to connect with the God that is within. So I'm not praying to a personal being. I am connecting with the life force that is God within. Do you understand? So Christians believe that prayer is always speaking to God. It's not a declaration. It's not a pronouncement of blessings or curses. Those things are different. And so when we speak to this God that we have a relationship to, with, we have to tell him, or we try to tell him very, very important things, or make certain important requests. Now, we've seen many of those requests in the last uh, uh, six weeks. Today, we're going to talk about a request that is really important. It is called to be protected from the abundance of evil in this fallen and broken world. Now, this is not an easy topic. It's one fraught with all manner of controversies today. How do we pray against evil? How do we pray against protection in this world? So I want to tread carefully into it, but I think that if we examine things that Paul says in this passage and in other parts of Scripture, we will be able to pray against real enemies in, God, in a God-honoring way. This, guys, is very, very important. So this final sermon series I have called Praying Against Foes, praying against foes. And I'm glad to let you know that unlike Damien's rebellious behavior last week, we will be treating it under three headings. Hallelujah. All right, deliver, the first point, deliverance from wicked ones, the natural foes. Second is protection from an evil one, the spiritual foe. And salvation from a just one, the eternal foe. Deliverance from wicked ones, protection from an evil one, Salvation from a just one. Take your eyes. Let's go to the first point. Take your eyes to verse 2. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. Paul asks to be delivered from wicked and evil people. Now, in Lagos here, whether you have been living in Lagos all your life or you studied abroad or you are modern, you watch Tinsel, or you watch, um, is there still NTH on our seven, by the way? Who knows? No? All right. But you used to watch like fake, cockboy, those, kind of, those kind of things. Whether you do any of those things, we are very, very aware of enemies. Enemies are all around. Wicked people. 
all around. They give us a very hard time. They give us a hard time physically. They give us a hard time in our minds. Evil people. Who are these wicked and evil people? Now, the two Greek words used here to describe them is Christos and Poneron. They don't describe people that are just, that just have passive character defects. All of us have passive character defects. If you don't think you do, ask your wife, or ask your husband, or ask your brother or your sister. That is, you have things that are not desirable. You, don't, you are not always at your best. You do think of things that are bad. We all have passive character defects. But people are able to live with us. No, here it's talking about not just the fact that they have these effects, defects, but that these are morally aggressive people. There's moral aggression or immoral aggression in the way they behave. Badu, I don't know if any of you have heard of them. Or is it Badu? I'm not quite sure. These are a gang of ritualists and rapists that have been terrorizing the Korodu area for at least the last two years. They've apparently killed over 500 people, massacred them, some of them, a lot of them in their sleep. The other day in July, one of the people was caught. He was, you know, he was set ablaze in jung by jungle justice because the police have not done very well with them. And why were they doing that? Because this guy was allegedly in possession of the head of an infant. The head of an infant. It's like sin. He means running around. These beautiful, wonderful children. And somebody can think within their minds that one of the best things to do so that I can gain something in this world is to take off that infant's head. Evil and wicked people. Of my friend that was telling me, and I know this from a personal experience, at least two of my family members, this has happened to, of she going in, in a particular vehicle on her way to work recently, and you know what happens? Somebody starts saying something, oh, I don't know about this, and the moment you enter into that conversation, probably when you wake up, most of your savings have already gone. God forbid they may have raped you. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Somebody comes and taps you, and they say something, and you are charmed. Again, I know this, this is not a story. Someone in my, my family was actually uh, um, a victim of this. An aunt of mine, that happened. By the time she woke up, she was in a kind of jungle-like place. They were in a bus. All the people in the bus were on top of themselves. And she noticed that some men were coming. They were carrying them, carrying them into one white house in this place. As the men came and took some bodies and took them into that place, she got out and she ran. Only God knows whether those people ever saw the light of day. Wicked and evil people. Now, I've given you some of the actions that these people do, but what is at the root of it? Well, Paul describes it to us. He says that these are people, again in verse 2, that do not have faith, for not everyone has faith. Now, quite often we think of faith as the ability to envision the audacious and the impossible. But Paul, and quite, you know, especially when you read the New Testament, this isn't the real definition of faith. Faith is mainly an expression of the condition of someone's heart in relation to God. And he's saying that these people, because of the condition of their heart, they are not with faith, they do these things. They have hard hearts. This is why Moses says, 
There was an exception. Even though from the beginning, God made husband and, women and wife to be together in holy matrimony until death do them part, he does make an exception for the marriage to be dissolved. Why? Because of the hardness of heart. It's not just, well, this person has a hard heart. He makes me smile every day. He brings me roses. I'm always, I feel, I feel so overjoyed in his presence. But he has a hard heart, so I'm divorcing him. No. The only way you're going to see whether somebody has a hard heart is by the actions that come from that hardness of heart. Paul says, in describing these people, their hearts are inclined to do wickedly. In verse 5, he describes people whose hearts have been changed by the grace of God. Those are inclined to the love of God. But he's saying in the other way, if your heart has not been changed, if you are not someone who the Holy Spirit has worked on, not that you will always do untold evils, but when you do evils like these kinds of people, it is not totally out of character. This is where a hard heart goes. They are people without faith. Another description of them comes in Psalm 17. In Psalm 17, David is describing some wicked people. Verse 13, listen to what he says. Rise up, Lord, confront them. Bring them down with your sword. Rescue me from the wicked. See that again. By your hands, save me from such people. So David is already praying this kind of prayer. Why? Who are these people? He said, from those of this world whose reward in this is in this life. By definition, as a Christian, if you become one, your heart is changed, and you then have an eternal perspective on life. For those whose hearts have not been changed, he says, their reward is in this life. Their perspective on the world does not have room for eternal judgment. It has no room for eternal felicity. Reward and cursing and, you know, all the evils of suffering that you can get, you're only going to get it in this world. And so for them, their best life is going to be in this world. And so it doesn't matter the things you have to do to live in that best life. They have no eternity in view. Their only reward is seen in this world, and therefore, if they have to cut off an infant's head to get their reward in this life, then they will do it. And Paul and David are basically telling us, because of such people, we have to pray. You see, it is self-sufficiency for you to think that your money, your gates, your security, your burglar bars, your bulletproof car, can save you, are enough to save you from such people. In fact, the psalmist knows that. I think Paul is reading the psalmist in Psalm 127, verse 1b, and he says this, unless the Lord watches over the city, they, the guards, stand watch in vain. There is a way that sometimes the blessings of God that come to us make us so self-sufficient that we do not feel, well, there may be wicked people, evil people there, but I have been able to insulate myself from these things. And Paul is saying, no, you need to pray. Now, but Paul isn't just asking for general deliverance. This evil and wicked people, he's not first and foremost, he's not first, let me just tell you, he's not first and foremost talking about your boss. The request is set in a context. What is the context of these evil people? Well, it is in verse 1. Notice what he says. He says, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly. So the context through where these evil people and wicked people operate 
is the mission, the mission of God, the spread, the rapid spread of the gospel. And Paul knows in his ministry that this mission is always resisted by certain wicked people. 2 Timothy 3 verse 10. You, however, know all my, I go to 11, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Paul is saying, this is my reality. It's always been, as he was telling Timothy, and the Thessalonians knew about it as well because this was their reality. Earlier in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast among your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. They endured it from wicked people because if you read Paul's earlier letter to them in chapter 1, verse 14 to 16, it says, For you... Brothers, this is 1 Thessalonians 1, 14 to 16. You, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. It's in the context of the fact that we want to speak to the Gentiles, and you guys are also doing that, that the resistance comes from these wicked people. You see, spreading the gospel and living in accordance with that gospel always attracts wicked and evil people. Now, don't get me wrong, again. Notice what I haven't said. I have not said, any non-Christian you see is equal to these wicked and evil people. No. But I can tell you this. Any wicked and evil person that you see is certainly not a Christian. You see, think about, for instance, let's say you work in the fashion industry. I know a few people that do. I think the fashion industry, like many other industries, is a product of God. I mean, we do need clothes, don't we? Well, we are wearing clothes that were dreary looking and all that. Life would be a bit of a chore, at least to your eyes. It's good for people to put style there, color, all of those things. It brings out the creativity in people. It's good for people who are models to be able to show us what those things will look like on our bodies. Sometimes they will never look like that on our bodies, but it's nice to dream anyway. But it is the case, more and more, if you see in the fashion industry, that for you to advance, I'm not saying it's impossible, but for you to advance, the systems are set up so much in such a debauched way that you have to probably sleep with somebody for you to get a particular job. It's just the case. And so you go in there, and then you want to live as a Christian. You want to fulfill everything that comes with your training. You want to do everything that would enable you to do your best in that place to succeed and as you're doing that, and people see the talent, but they also find you to be attractive. And then you say, I want to live as a Christian. What do you think that's going to do? You think you get that job? Not necessarily. The spread of the mission and living in accordance with that mission almost always will attract the eyes of wicked and evil people. And what would they do? They would oppose it. In fact, later Paul says this as he was talking to Timothy in verse 12. He says, in fact, everyone, in fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, being aware of wicked people doesn't necessarily mean that you are paranoid, even though it could mean that. 
I'll get to that soon. On the contrary, it may mean, based on what we have been saying here, Paul's experience and what we're seeing in the Bible, that you are actually more aware of the reality of missional Christians who intend on, give, on, on living godly. You are, intent on, you, are, you are more aware of the reality they face. Now, there are two extremes as we try to do this that we must avoid. The first extreme is obsession. Obsession with the wicked and evil people. If you do that, you will pray about them too much. The second is negligence of them. If you do this, then you will see no need to pray about them. Both indicate that you are living a life on your own mission and not Jesus' mission. Remember, the attraction of the wicked people is lies that are trying to spread the gospel and to live it out. If it's not happening, I'm not saying that you become a Christian today, that immediately happens. But if it's not happening, then can I suggest to you, especially if you're going in these two extremes, that you are living on your own mission. Because if you're obsessive, what you're basically feeling like is that I have a mission that I'm trying to live, but I am not secure enough in my ability to achieve that mission. It's because of all these people here. So you are obsessive and you're praying about this in ways that are unhelpful. But if you are negligent about them, it's because you are living your mission and you are secure in your ability to be able to fend off uh, your ability to be able to secure or achieve the end of that mission. Do we understand that? Because you see, in Jesus' own mission, you have to pray because there are always enemies. So, but how Paul prays and how Paul lives his life is that Paul is, on the one hand, assured in the ability and the character of a sovereign God to protect him from, he's uh, assured in the ability and character of a sovereign God, which means he is not passive. He calls out to that God. He's not negligent. But on the other hand, he requests prayers. But it's not personal to Paul. On the one hand, he feels that God can deliver him. So he asks for prayers. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 9 to 11. I'm not reading it now, but that on one hand, he keeps asking. In fact, he thanks them that the, he gets delivered because of their prayers. And he says, more and more thankfulness will go to God because of your prayers. So Paul is confident, and that's why he asks for prayers. He is not negligent. On the other hand, Paul is not obsessive. Obsessive people who pray about their enemies all the time, because it's their own mission, it has become personal. And so when they pray, they do not pray like Paul, who prayed in Romans 15, verse 31, like this. Pray that I may be kept safe from unbelievers in Judea, and the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the, peop- by the lost people. He said, pray that I may be kept safe from them. Paul prays for safety and deliverance from them. He does not pray for them to be exterminated. When you pray for your enemies and you pray against their actions and you pray against them that also they should die, it's not because you are living out Christ's mission. If you are living out Christ's mission, you'll be very well aware of them and you pray against their devices, but you don't pray against them. Do we understand? What are we meant to do in relation to wicked and evil people? We are to constantly offer up non-retributive prayers for deliverance from wicked people opposing the gospel spread in word and deed. 
in the context of mission, we pray against their evil uh, devices, especially as it pertains to how we leave the mission and try to spread it. And yet, this isn't the only thing we are to pray against. Point two. Protection from the evil one. Thank you, Fenn. Protection from the evil one. Now, I don't know if you are not a, if you are not a Christian, but obviously, as, um, as Christians, we believe that the world that we see is not the world that we can see physically is not the only world that there is. Now, you may say, well. I'm the kind of person, I'm a modern person, I like to believe the things that I can see empirically. If I can't see it like this, empirically, physically, then I don't believe that it exists. Well, that would be via that kind of person. That would be like me saying, if you come to meet me and you say, I've lost my keys. And then I say, okay, let's go and look under the lamppost. We don't see it under the lamppost. And then I say, your lost keys don't exist. Hey, what? Of course, my, what are you saying? I said, no, but we went and we checked under this light. It doesn't exist. Like, hey, but what about if it was, what, what about if the sun comes up and then we can see? Like, oh, so the lamppost is one form of investigating knowledge. The sun is another form of investigating knowledge. The mere fact that you cannot see something physically, physical science is not the only way we investigate reality, is it? And besides, many non-Christians have looked at some of the worst evils in this world. Think about the murder, the slaughter of people in Srebrenica. Think about the slaughter of people in Rwanda. I heard that people, was it Femi or you know that I was saying, people were praying to be shot. They would prefer to be shot. People were being slaughtered. They weren't using guns. They were butchering people with machetes. One million people out of seven million people, all gone. And people have looked at those evils and said, I understand why people commit evil. Some of it is psychological. I understand why some people commit it. Some of it is sociological. Yes, those things were there in this thing, but there is something else moving these people that is subhuman. And it's not just subhuman in a personal way. It seemed that they were being directed. And Christians will say yes. In fact, Paul will say yes because Paul expresses his desire for the Christians to be protected in verse 3 from the evil one. That's the way it's called in the Bible here. In the evil one, some other places it's called Satan. Some other places he's called the devil. Now, as Christians, we don't believe that there's an equal, in this cosmic reality, there is an equal um, and opposite force. God is good. He has the same amount of force as the devil in the evil. No, we don't believe that. We believe that there is a God and the devil is also within that world that God has created. He's not an equal and opposite force, but he's a real enemy. He is a real enemy. So I want to talk a little bit about him. This evil one has, he has, a, he has a day job. You see, don't forget the context is that the gospel is being spread. And the gospel is being spread means essentially that this evil one's kingdom, he's losing territory in his kingdom. So he doesn't like that. So on account of that, this evil one, the devil, is not unemployed. The guy has a job. He's not sending his CV to you. And what is his job? He has one job description. It's basically this. Oppose and destroy the kingdom of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And elsewhere, I think in John chapter 10, Jesus says, 
the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He has one job description. It's called destruction of this kingdom. This rapidly spreading gospel, destroy it. Well, there are two ways he tries to do it, two key work objectives that he has given himself. One is persecution. The other one is deception. This is how he achieves destruction. One is persecution. The other one is deception. If you want to see it in graphic form, go to Revelation chapter 13, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. The false prophet and the seven-headed, uh, the, 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 the ten-headed, uh, uh, seven-headed beast with ten, ten horns. Terror and error. Now take persecution. What does he do when he's working to destroy through persecution? Let me give you four things. He does this through slaughtering Christians. He sets up evil and oppressive systems. He allows for cultural marginalization and direct demonization. And this is why Paul, in verse 3, says we need to pray for, he, he, he indicates that Christians should be praying for protection, for protection, that you should pray for protection for the advance of the gospel. This is why in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, he says something like this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and in holiness. We may live lives according to the gospel, so we pray. He said, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Paul is aware of this kind of evil when it is set up in an oppressive system. There are Christians in an oppressive communist system like North Korea being slaughtered every day. There are Christians in the Middle East being slaughtered like sheep just every day. And what about the marginalized church? In the West, out, away, if you cannot affirm that homosexual life is actually great or you cannot denounce that it's actually sinful, sorry, you can't be the CEO of Mozilla. The CEO of Mozilla hardly lasted a month or two once they found out that you opposed certain things that they didn't like. Cultural marginalization. And then sometimes he doesn't even work through systems and all of those things. He just goes, he has demons, and he demonizes, he demonically oppresses people. And Paul is saying, this kind of life is hard. Please, don't be totally given into your problems and not think about these things. The people need your prayers. Paul said that it was as though I had the sentence of death. And I despaired for life itself. But thank you for your prayers. Because God delivered me, he would yet deliver me through your prayers, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 to 11. 2 Corinthians 1, 9 to 11. So that's persecution. Let me spend a little bit more time on deception. Because you can be here and say, well, in Lagos, I mean, everybody, our president just came back and he said, thank you for your prayers. Everybody's always asking for prayers, right? We are not in a place where we'll be culturally marginalized as Christians. Christians make up 55% of the population. Neither do we live in an oppressive system that says that we can't practice our faith. People boom. There are Christianity all around with all these um, speakers everywhere. So we are not like that. We are modern people. Well, actually, this has not done one thing to remove or to diminish the work of Satan, our modern life, our urban life. No, it hasn't. It's just made it more subtle, stealth, and sophisticated. Let me give you one of his most dangerous weapons that is so effective today. You know what it's called? Prayerlessness. 
You see, often when we think our Lagosian life is basically designed to intentionally make us prayerless. Yet many of us think when we are dealing with this, it's just busyness and lack of planning. Can I suggest that you think deeper about this? You see, what is prayerlessness? Prayerlessness is a statement of self-sufficiency. That's what it is. It's a statement of self-sufficiency. Before you tell me why you couldn't pray that time or this or that, or that it is a statement itself of self-sufficiency. And it's so dangerous because it makes us weak and vulnerable while all the while making us feel that we are strong and secure. It's even why sometimes if I confront or you confront some people with their prayerlessness, you know what they will say? They will say that, no, I'm not prayer. This prayerlessness is not prayerlessness. See, after all, I speak to God every day. I told him this. I told him that. I told him, I'm not prayerless. You will be telling them they're prayerless. It's obvious. And the, the, the fruit of their life is showing prayerlessness. And you say, no, 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 I'm not prayerless. You know what's happening there? Prometheus said, whom the gods want to destroy, they do what? They first make mad. I learned one Yoruba one. My wife said, don't say it, but I'm going to try and attempt. It said, that is someone that is under a spell. The real good Yoruba people are laughing at me. I know the people that can't really speak Yoruba, they are not laughing. You can see, they, they say, ah, oh, this guy is doing well. Ah, ah, he's quoted one nice Yoruba proverb. The other ones are saying, ah, my show. Anyway, translate, the one that is under a spell will say that he's thinking. You put it forward there and you cannot see. And I'm telling you, this is a dangerous weapon of the enemy. Because think about it. Who wins when we don't pray? Where does the life of prayerlessness eventually lead? I've seen this a lot. Look, listen. What happens eventually is that we gradually do not do the commandments of God, as Paul shows in 4. He says he has confidence that they will continue to do the things we command. But you start to drift away. It's drifting. You lose a sense of connection with God. You lose the appetite to evangelize, to make church community, you make church community an extra add-on. Become more divisive, more irritable, less accountable, non-reflective, angrier, more pensive, less empathetic, more distant, more self-sufficient. And you say, well... It's not really prayerlessness. This is where it leads to. And ultimately, it leads you to a, just a time of crisis. For some people, that is a significant moral failure. And you say, no, I don't know how this thing happened. I can tell you. Or, a, or catastrophic breakdowns in your relationship, in your marriage, with your friends, with your church. Or a total sense of purposelessness. I lost that contract and I just, I have lost the will to live. And I'm telling you, this doesn't just come like that. Unfortunately, what happens is we start to seek pragmatic ways to deal with the problems. We start thinking, you know, I just adjust. I'm just adjusting. That's all that matters. No. What has essentially happened is what Proverbs 24.10 says. You have come to the day of adversity and you have you are fallen. Or NIV says it this way. If you falter in the time of trouble, why is that happening? Because your strength is small. So Paul expresses his desire for the believers to have strength. We sang today, strength will rise as we do what? Part of where you wait on the Lord is in prayer. 
You know why? Because when you get into the battle, you don't, when you get into the battle and falter, it's not, it's the, it's, it's the battle is the place where you actually start to develop strength. You have an enemy that you say, ah, hold on, no, I've not sharpened my sword. Please give me some time. You go for a match, and you say, ah, I've not fit. Can I go on the treadmill? No, the battle is the place where you show whether you have strength or not. But if you falter in the day of battle, it's because what? Your strength is small. Guys, smell the coffee. Why these things happen to us is not strictly just because there was traffic. It's because the enemy is setting up things to keep us prayerless. It is a spiritual battle. Prayerlessness is one of the enemy's most important weapons in that spiritual battle. This is why Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, and he puts this in the Lord's prayer, but deliver us from what? The evil one. So how do we develop strength? I will have given you my example for want of time. But even in mine, I'll say, ah, Lord, I'm very, very busy. You know, I'm trying to lead the church to more gospel-centered way of thinking. And even the church to make them pray more. And you're trying to lead the church to pray more. Whilst, guess what? You're not doing well. You're not praying. You rationalize it. When we enter into that mode, we are toast for the enemy. Once you start rationalizing your inadequacies, you are toast for your enemy. So let me give you three ways in which we develop strength. Three ways to develop strength. Quickly. Honesty, repentance, and intentionality. Honesty, repentance, and intentionality. First one. Honesty, it is honesty in assessment. Honesty in assessment. So please, all of you look up. Ask yourself these questions. Some of these kinds of questions. Do I have a dedicated prayer time? Daily. Don't tell me I have a dedicated prayer time. It's weekly. Sorry, it's not enough. You hear me? It's not what? Enough. The assault of the enemy doesn't wait weekly. Do you have a dedicated personal prayer time weekly? Dedicated. Weekly. What? Weekly. Thank you. Well, weekly. Uh, <laughs> shall we all stretch our hands to pray for him? All right. Do you have a dedicated prayer time daily? How much sporadic time do I spend on my smartphone compared with prayer? Now, I'm not talking about I have emails that I have to send. Do you understand? No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the sporadic time. Woo, what's happening on Facebook today? Wee! Wah! And you're weeing and whining your spiritual life away. And I'm saying, connect that. Again, not to say you shouldn't view Facebook. Not to say you shouldn't view Twitter. No, none of those things. But I'm saying when you compare the amount of those sporadic times and you compare with your sporadic times of prayer, not your dedicated time of prayer, compare the two of them. When you wake up, what do you wake up to? Your smartphone, Facebook. When you are going to sleep, what's the last thing you look at? Twitter. Remember, honesty in assessment. Do I have an intentional, for those who are married, do I have an intentional prayer time with my spouse? The one thing my wife and I have fought over the most, not fought over, with, but we fought against the most, is trying to always establish our dedicated prayer time. Spouse. Look, couples that pray well together are couples that fight less. And sometimes they say, oh, we're not fighting. Is it because the house is silent, you're not fighting? No, she's keeping our things, you are keeping your things. When you have to pray more, not just a, about the issues concerning you guys, but other things, you are being bonded more and more and more. Do I have an intentional prayer time in my spouse? And don't say to me, no, we pray, we pray, we just allow it as the Spirit leads. Man, you are in trouble. And how about this one? 
how do I feel when a church prayer meeting is called? Is it an immediate priority? Or is it something that slips my mind? Or something that is open? You know what? Okay, they call the prayer time. We'll see. We'll see whether I make it. Oh, I was about to, but you know what happened? My sister's something, or this other, ah, this other function came. Now, again, you can't make everything. Some other things come up. But if that is the consistent pattern, there's a problem. Or there's short prayer time. Carry that smartphone that always this morning and now put it there. Block. So that when that appointment comes, ah, can we make it tomorrow? You don't have to tell them what you're doing. Can you make it tomorrow? Now, I'm saying this is, you, the first step is that you have to be honest in your own assessment. Femi, please, you give me some extra 10 minutes. I'm sure you can make it back up. The second, when you are honest there, then you have to repent. So it, if it, we move from honesty and assessment to repentance following admittance. Because you have to admit to God. The most difficult aspect of repentance is coming to terms with the fact that you have sinned. We don't like it. Guilt feels really hard. I spoke to someone counseling this week, and we're talking about something, and the person just told me, I don't like talking about this thing. I said, why? He said, because I feel guilty, and it makes me uncomfortable. But if you don't express it, you can't repent. If you can't repent, you can't get forgiveness and grace that you need. So you admit to God and ask for forgiveness and help. Spouses, if this thing has not been happening, don't tiptoe around it and, talk, and behave like there's an elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about. Have an honest conversation about it. And then both of you have a repentance session before God. And then keep yourselves accountable. If this person forgets, you remind. Then for those who are not married, but even if you are married also, it pays to admit to someone else apart from your spouse to expose the sin. For months, I kept on telling Francis, and this is my biggest problem. I'm not praying enough. Why? Because it is possible sometimes, if you and your spouse, if your spouse is even worse than you at this thing, you know, you guys kind of just allow the thing to flow. Admit to someone else. Why? You are exposing the sin. Whatsoever makes manifest is light. But when you don't expose it, the things are there, hidden things in darkness. Expose it. And then finally, under repentance, because repentance is not just what you say to God, it's that, but it is then expressed in that you do an action to turn. Remember, repentance is mourning before God and turning. So what do you do? Develop. For all our strategic whatever, can you be strategic here? Develop a realistic prayer plan for your day and week and let someone know about it to keep you accountable. Don't just say, I've developed it, it's fine, wonderful, beautiful. And you do it for the first three days and then you don't again. You falter the first. Develop a realistic, when I say realistic, please, you people that work, you know you have to get out at 5.36, don't think that you're going to develop a one hour prayer time in the morning and one hour prayer time in the evening during a weekday, it's not going to happen. But a 10 and 15 minute one, first thing in the morning, can happen. And if you cannot find that, anything that's keeping you from doing that, please let it go. Develop something, put a plan down. You have to be, and do that and keep, let someone keep you accountable. Finally, the last one. Intentionality with creativity. Intentionality with creativity. Please, when you pray, part of the problem is this. A guy called Paul Miller, who has written one of the best books ever on prayer, A Praying Life, I recommend everyone to go and get it. Sell your shirt if you don't have money and buy it. It is a fantastic book. 
And one of the things Paul Miller says is this. We often struggle in prayer because we focus on praying and not God. You see, we're often defeated. I'm not praying again. I'm not praying. Okay, I'm not going to do this prayer. You often focus on praying, and it is on your ability to pray, and you forget that this fundamental reality that prayer is speaking to God. Focus on God. Meditate on who God is so that you want to see his glory and you want to see his mission. Once you start meditating on that, it is not about how long can I pray. How long should we pray? Is it 10, 12? There are many things to pray about. Focus on God and not on prayer. Now, as you do this and working out these things, can I say consistency is more important, at least initially, than duration. That plan that you set up, make it realistic and fight for consistency. Consistency is not dependent on whether I had a fantastic prayer time or not. Last week, early in the week, I had a glorious prayer time. I started trying to remember all the things that I was praying about. I wanted to repeat it the next week. It didn't happen. But guess what? I was there praying. So it's about being consistent. Consistency is key in this thing. Why? Prayer is a spiritual exercise. And like every physical exercise, the more you do it, the more you want to do it. Then also, in creativity, another thing that can help you is study the word. Because then you have something to meditate on. Now, if you say, ah, study the word. When I open it, I don't know what to do. I don't have, I'm not quite sure. You know what you can do? Very simple. There's a technological advancement on this. It's called prayer devotional book. Buy a prayer devotional book. It will help you. You don't have to do it alone. There are people that have written these things. Buy Tim Keller and Kathy Keller's own. Um, that is praying through the Psalms in one year. Buy John Piper's own. Buy, take Oswald Chambers' own of yesteryears. These things are written, short prayers for you there. They have a meditation of the word there. You can do this thing in 10, 15 minutes. And please try not to do it on the last thing of the day. Because you will sleep. Guys, what I'm saying is this. Prayer is, uh, prayerlessness is an issue of spirit. It's a, it's a spiritual battle. And the lack of prayer in our lives leads us down a very terrible road. It's a road of self-sufficiency. It will lead you to a crisis or it will lead you to numbness. The devil wants to attack our prayer lives and he's doing so. And you can attack back. You have to be intentional. You have to be honest. You have to repent. But you can. The, the, the jewels that, are after, that, are, that we can achieve through prayer, my God. Our prayerlessness is a reflection that the enemy is winning. Final point. Sorry. Finally, salvation from the eternal one, from an eternal one. We've looked at deliverance from wicked ones, protection from an evil one, and now salvation from an eternal one. Now, we've spoken a lot about wicked people. We've spoken about the devil. And you will say this, no wonder people are scared sick of him or them. You see, if you have an evil, powerful being that is also very deceptive and is smart, he's obviously able to cause untold evil upon us. Shouldn't we be scared? Why won't we be scared? And this really leads us to pray most times out of fear. The obsessive kinds of prayer are born out of fear. And by fear, I don't mean genuine deep concern. We should have genuine deep concern. But I'm talking about fear. By fear, I mean the dreaded emotion displayed because of the ultimate control or rule or dominion that a being or circumstance has over us. 
And so our prayers are too rapid, too... They are born out of fear. Now, contrary to what many of us are already thinking here, no, the Bible tells us not to fear. Sorry, the Bible tells us to fear. The Bible encourages us to fear. Because we normally link fear with harm. I'm scared of something because it could harm me. And you will be right to be scared of something because it will harm you. And the Bible encourages fear. But when it does that, the Bible redefines the scope of harm more than the ability to harm. What do I mean? Here is a guide on what you should fear. Here is a guide on what you should fear. Read the whole Bible. If the Bible says something can be prayed against, then it should not be feared. If the Bible says something should be prayed against, then it should not what? Be feared. If we should pray against the evil one, if we should pray against wicked people, then we shouldn't fear them. So what should we fear? Because our fear is that these people could kill us. He could kill us. That's the greatest fear. Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It redefines the scope of the harm. Do not be scared of the ones that cannot kill you eternally. But there is a destruction that can happen eternally. And Paul speaks about that earlier in this same book, in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of this might. You cannot pray against this. And since you cannot pray against this, this being that is just, you should fear. You should fear. But when we say we should pray, it is the antithesis of fear. Look at this being that can destroy people eternally. And he says we shouldn't. How do we know that we shouldn't fear? Because he says when you want to pray, the very first thing that should come out of your, word is, or your mouth is what? Ah. The same one that should be feared is the same one that we're saying, I should say, our father. We are his children. And children, these children were once enemies who had legitimate fear of God's judgment. And now they can pray and not be fearful before God. And when he's saying they should pray, he said, we should pray from those that can harm you, the wicked and evil ones. And when you pray against them, don't fear them. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. The answer, obviously, is Jesus. But what do I mean by Jesus? In Jesus' life and ministry, after he lived all these things and he was going to the cross, who killed Jesus at the cross? Well, I'll tell you. Evil and wicked people. In fact, Peter confronted them. He said, with evil hands and wicked hands, you crucified him. Evil and wicked people harmed Jesus. But just before the person that was going to betray him betrayed him, we hear that Satan entered into him. That's Judas Iscariot. And he then did what he wanted to do. Who killed Jesus? The evil one did it. In fact, it was prophesied very early on in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman would cross the serpent, but the serpent would do what? Would bruise his heel. They harmed and they killed Jesus. 
And yet Jesus wasn't scared of them. What made Jesus' death really horrible? Because it wasn't just the wicked and the evil people. No. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of the Father, the one who can destroy eternally. It was the will of the Father to crush him. So even the Father brought untold harm upon Jesus. Why? Because of what Jesus did? No. Because of what the enemies that were going to become children did. And that's why in 1 John 4, verse 18, it says that you should not fear. He said because fear has to do with torment, eternal torment. But we can have confidence on the day, not fear, confidence on the day of judgment. Why? Because perfect love has cast away fear. What's God's answer to fear and dread? It's love. What love? The love in Jesus. How did he demonstrate that love? He gave him as a propitiation for our sins so that now we, his children, can pray. So why then shouldn't we fear evil people when they can harm us? Well, what is it that they did to Jesus? They killed Jesus in the body. Three days later, what did he do? He rose again. So the greatest weapon that the enemy had to destroy Jesus, Jesus looked at him and triumphed over it. Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And he first showed him that he would do that because he rose from the dead. So that through death, he could now save all those who through the fear of death have all their lives been subject to bondage. So why shouldn't you fear? Even though the reality of what wicked people can do, why shouldn't you fear? It's because this, they can destroy your, your, your body in this world. They cannot destroy your soul because just like Jesus rose again, we also will rise again. There's a mission of God that is in our day. Paul sets this in the context of mission. We want to see spiritual, cultural, and social renewal in this city. We will face opposition. And there will be wicked people, and the evil one is at his day job. But we are called to pray. And when we pray, we don't pray retributive prayers. We are ensured that we are not negligent, and we don't pray out of fear. No, we pray because we have a God who loves us so much, sent his son to die for us, has given us new life and will bring us back to him. Wouldn't you want to pray about that? Let's pray. Paul says, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever, to which we say, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.